We are, uh, Dr. Barrick is clearly not here this morning, he is in Portugal, he will be away this week and next week, and uh, in the meantime, I'm going to start us off on a study of First Thessalonians, uh, which overlaps somewhat with uh, the uh, study we've been doing in Revelation, and uh, tomorrow though we have a different subject, we have a different topic, we have uh, uh, Derek Moore, remember Derek was here a few weeks ago, uh, he's back again with us tomorrow. So uh, he's with us again tomorrow, so uh, tomorrow. You guys are here tomorrow, you'll be joining college students, so I don't recommend that. Uh, as we start though, what's, uh, what are some of the, who are some of the people who have been most influential in your life? Someone put their hands up. Well, shout it out. Stan. My mother. Your mother. Good. My Good. Great. Um, and, and these people who are influential, we tend to, what do we tend to do? How do we respond to them? We, yeah, we follow their advice. We tend to sort of imitate them in a certain way, don't we? We kind of look at their way of life and then we kind of imitate it. We, we, we take on some of the, the things that they do. Uh, so this morning we're going to sort of have a look at how, what happened in the church at uh, Thessalonica. Before we go to First Thessalonians, I told you to turn there, turn back with me to Acts. And what I want to do is just sort of talk through how the church at Thessalonica came about. And this is really going to be our theme this morning, is an introduction to the book of Thessalonians. How did this Thessalonian church get introduced? How did it start? Um, what sort of church was it? And, uh, and, and just sort of look at what, what the life there was that, that we see in both in Acts and in, and in the book of First Thessalonians. So, uh, let's start off, uh, we're going to read a few verses to start off with. Um, Acts chapter 16, sorry, did I not say that? That's sloppy, my bad. Um, just while you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background here. The city was initially called Therma. The reason they think that was was because there was a hot spring there. Does the word thermal kind of remind you of anything like that? Yeah, thermal. Um, so there's a thermal springs there, and they called it therma. And what happened was um, around the time, or just after Alexander the Great died, he had four, four the, the kingdom, his kingdom, his massive kingdom, split into four pieces. One of those pieces uh, ended up being ruled by a guy called Cassander. And that was Macedonia, where we are in Thessalonica. So, what happened is apparently Cassander had a wife uh, whose name I think was something like Thessalonia or Thessalon, something with a Y on the end. Um, And he built a city nearby Therma. And what happened was that city grew and basically overtook Therma and it became known as Thessalonica after his wife. So that's kind of where it came from. When the Romans took over... They took Macedonia, the area of Macedonia, and broke it into four pieces. Uh, and Thessalonica, was the, uh, Thessalonica became the capital of the, of the second of these four divisions of Macedonia. Now, in, uh, in the Roman politics, there was a couple of periods of time where there were some struggles between you know, different powerful people. And there was a struggle between Octavian and... A bunch of it. There's four people. This is the there's two two groups of two people each. I forget all their names. Forgive me. Um, and they had this struggle, and Thessalonica 
picked the winning side. And for their choosing the winning side, they didn't realise it was a winning side when they chose, it was kind of fortuitous for them, in exchange for them choosing the, the guys who ended up winning, they were made a free city by the Roman government. And what that meant was that they were able to self-govern. They didn't have... They, didn't, they had the Roman governor there, but they had no Roman soldiers, and the Roman governor was there because it was the capital of that whole province. So it wasn't so much that it was, uh, you know, unlike Philippi, for instance. Philippi was, was not a free city, and what they had was they had, you know, this big Roman contingent of soldiers there. What happens, do you think, when you get a, a, a pile of soldiers? We could ask Marv, perhaps. What happens when a pile of soldiers come to town in a foreign area? Yeah, they change the culture, right? So you end up, you end up with the, the young women see all these young men and go, hey, all these good-looking soldiers, I can't resist a man in uniform, and all that kind of thing. And it changes the culture quite significantly. But Thessalonica didn't have this. So it was able to retain a lot of its Greek culture. Whereas Philippi, for instance, was very much, much more thinking, uh, thinking a lot more about what the Romans were doing. And, uh, and we'll see that as we do our, some reading in just a moment. So this was the seat of the Roman governor. This city remains to this day. It is uh, is currently called Salonica. Salonica. It was called Thessalonica until about 1937, and then they changed the name of it. In Paul's day, it had about 200,000 people living there. Today, there's about 400,000 people. And this city was really, really important when we think about the New Testament. The reason for that was that the main road that went from west to east went right through Thessalonica. So, for Paul to, have, to come to Thessalonica and evangelise this city really opened the door for the west, because of course he's coming from the east, to receive the gospel. Yeah, I guess so. Lacking a little bit of American history and whatnot, but yeah. I'll, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Let's read a little bit. Uh, can I get a couple of people to read? I have a volunteer or two. Tom, Stan. Tom, would you like to read first? Uh, sorry, Acts chapter one. Uh, sorry, Acts chapter sixteen. Rather, you have to forgive me. Sixteen verses one through, or one and two, and then six and eight, and then uh, nine to twelve. So we'll just we'll flick through these quickly. And uh, 9 to 12. Paul came also to Derby and Elizabeth, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, and his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in life with us for Pontus They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak to our nation. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to, to go into Bithynia. Uh, go through to verse 12. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, we were staying in the city for some days. Yeah. Uh, sorry. The seventh. Yeah, well, just before we go there, let me just trace this on the map here for you. So you can see here. I don't know if you can see this very well, but here in Lystra and Iconium down here, okay, maybe I should be over there, everyone else is over there, I'll be back. Um, Lystra and Iconium are down here. 
This is where he finds Timothy, picks him up, circumcises him, and takes him with him. He, he then comes up here. Look at the scale. You see that this is this is 300 miles. Okay, so we're talking walking or horseback kind of thing. These are there's no you know Macedonian airways or anything like that. So he goes from Lystra up through here, and you can see he's skirting the boundary between Asia and Galatia. And, and it says there that he was prevented from going into Galatia. He wasn't allowed to. The Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him. He comes up thinking he'll go into Bithynia, but again, the Lord wouldn't let him go into Bithynia. And so again, because he's not allowed to preach the word in Asia, he comes across the top and down it stays into Troas. Okay? Um, what do you think they might have been talking about as they walked along that, that, uh, that pass, that, that place between, you know, as they come up um, from Lystra up over to Troas? What do you think they might have been talking about? The long way. The long way, yeah. Okay, the long way. What else? Paul's always talking about the Lord, so... He is? He's ceaseless in prayer too, so he's going to be that. Yeah, but look at this. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, verse 6, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak. I suspect there may have been a bit of discussion as to why is it that normally when we go somewhere, we're allowed to preach the gospel wherever we go, but here he's specifically being restrained by God from preaching. I suspect this was a topic of discussion. I think this is perhaps why it turns up here in the writing, because this is, this, this is, this is strange, this is different. Uh, notice also that in verses 6 through to verse 8, it's a they passage. Chapter Verse 6 starts with the word they. Luke's not with them. So when they meet up with Luke, which happens in Troas, right, they tell Luke all about this. And the message that Luke is getting is that we weren't allowed to go to that place. So this was obviously something that they were thinking about that was on their minds. Verse 9 and 10. Let me just read verses 9 and 10 quickly. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing for him and saying, at this point he's at Troas, and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now it starts to come together. The reason we haven't been able to preach through all these areas is because the Lord is leading us over toward the west. And we see again the sovereign hand of God, even in the life of Paul. It's interesting. What we find here is fascinating because we get to... um, Well, let, let me just carry on, then I'll show you what happens here. Verse 11 and 12... They go over to Samothrace and then they get to Philippi. Yeah, Tom. Uh, being that now Luke is joining them, they're going to Greece. Wasn't Greek? Uh, Luke? I can't remember. Probably. Greek was the common language, right? The reason it's called Koine Greek, which is what. He may have done, yeah, yeah. Timothy also may have known the area a little bit as well, but yeah. Um, yeah, so they went over to Samothrace and into Philippi. And what happens in Philippi? He gets thrown in jail. He gets beaten and imprisoned. Stan, would you be able to read for us uh, Acts chapter 16, just uh, 22 to 24? The crowd rose up together against him, the chief magistrate, 
prostrates toward the roadside them and proceeds to order them to be beaten with rods. When they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet to the stocks. Yeah. We get the impression here that this is not the average way they would treat somebody in, Thessal- in, in uh, Philippi. Sorry, um, And we find out later as we read on that you know, they were Roman citizens, which meant that this was illegal. The way they were treating Paul and, and uh, Silas was wrong according to the law. And so they asked them to leave the city because if this guy appeals to the, the authority, it's a Roman city. Which means the leaders of the city could well be, you know, lose their positions or even being killed uh, for doing what they did to these Roman citizens. So, but the, the treatment they received there is pretty brutal. It says there in verse 22, they stripped their robes off them and they proceeded to beat them with rods. And as we read down a little uh, in uh, verse 34, so 33, verse 33 of chapter 16, the jailer, once he's been converted, he took them the very hour of the night, washed their wounds. So they had open wounds. And then they were thrown into this jail, into the innermost part of the jail where the worst of the offenders were. And it's amazing, I always marvel that they were singing hymns at midnight in jail with flesh torn off their backs uh, and they were still able to praise God. I think that's a great testimony. Um... How does Paul respond to this beating? What does he do? Yeah, he prays, he sings. Um, but have a look at who else wanted to read? Someone else put their hand up. Silas. What's that? Silas and Paul were together in prison. Yeah. They were singing. Yeah, that's right. They were praising God together in spite of their wounds and hardships. Would someone else like to read a little bit for me? Would you like to read verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 40, through to 17, verse 4, please? So what did he do once he'd been imprisoned and beaten in Philippi? What was his next mode of operation? What did he do? What's that? He preached. You know, the funny thing is that he went and did the same thing over again. Isn't that interesting? Now, what's that? He was compelled. What drove him? What was it that drove him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly that's, that's a big part of it. Remember Acts 9, when, when Saul was per- first called, right, 
He was called and it was told to Ananias, this man will find out what it means to suffer for my namesake, right? So certainly part of, of Paul's mission was to suffer for the gospel. But there's more to it than that. Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you can uh, probably keep your the passage... Well, we'll come back to, First Thess- uh, to Acts 17 a little later, so you might want to keep your finger in it. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through to 4. Would someone like to read those for us? Speak. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know. At Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness for God. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, God, which tries our hearts. Right. So, here we have his account of when he came down. He says we were beaten, we were put in prison, we, you know, we were shamelessly treated. And listen to verse 2. We had the boldness in our God to speak the gospel. He doesn't stop there. But he's saying there that God gives boldness. Okay? So, when we look at ourselves and we say... Why is it that I am not more bold? Is that God, what well, we can ask ourselves first of all, is that God's failing? Is God unwilling to give us that same boldness? What do you think? No. So what's the issue? Exactly. We're, we're the ones struggling here, right? Yeah, we need to ask for that boldness. But there's more. He says there in verse 4, Just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Why, Paul? Why? Not pleasing men, but God. What drove Paul then, do you think, to carry on from Philippi, having received such a beating? What was it that drove him on? Obedience to God. It was a desire to please God. He wasn't, he wasn't in this job for himself. He wasn't there just to, you know, to live a comfortable life and, and hopefully preach where people would let him. He was willing and able to preach regardless. And what's ironic here is that throughout that, remember on that map, as he went through between Galatia and Asia and he couldn't go into Bithynia and he had, you know, you could argue that the Lord was saving him through that period of time so that when he got to Philippi, when he got to Thessalonica, he would throw everything into it. And he would suffer in a huge way in order to share the gospel. We see his eagerness as he passes through. He's eager to preach the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 1 verse 7. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also. Are you eager? Are we eager to preach the gospel? Are we driven by a desire to please God? Is that what drives us? Or, or do we tend to fall back on a desire to please ourselves? I know that often I focus on the things that I want to do. And I'm sure you're probably the same. And I was convicted this week when I was reading this verse in Galatians 1.10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the favour of men or of God? 
Or am I striving to please men? Listen to this. If I was still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And I was convicted by that because I thought, when I go and please myself, that is me demonstrating that I am not God's servant, that I have taken myself out of his service and I have swapped him for something else. And I was challenged by that and I think that's a, that's a very challenging thought. So what, ple- what are you pleased by? What is it that you strive to be? What are you trying to, who are you pleasing? Are you pleasing yourself or are you pleasing the Lord? Is your life a life given up entirely to Christ or is it a life where you sort of build fences and walls around you so that you can't lose the things you love? Another way of looking at this would be um, looking at it as a fear of God. Uh, you know, the pleasing God being, there's two sides of the same coin, right? On the one side it's, I want to please God. On the other side, I don't want to displease God. Okay? So the fear of God constrains us or controls us in that sense. And uh, I'll just read another verse or two in this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade men that we are made manifest to God and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. So again, Paul's indicating that what drove him was to, to evangelism was this flip side. Was that the idea he wanted to please God, but he also feared displeasing God. He was afraid to do what God would, would, would not be pleased by. How do we cultivate a fear of God like this? How do we cultivate this, this kind of way of thinking? What do you guys think? Be in the Word. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to say be in the Word. Good. Excellent. Prayer. Yeah, we need to, we need to pray. And what Stan did with us before, you know, confessing our sins, one of the things, you know, the the less sin we confess, the less sin we see. The less sin we see, the less we fear God. That's kind of how it works. The higher our view of God and the lower our view of ourselves, the greater our fear of man, our fear of God will be. The greater our desire to please God will be. Um, Proverbs 19 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Matthew chapter 7. Turn with me to Matthew 7, briefly. And we've all read this parable, I don't know how many times, I'm sure. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Here's the question. What does the rock represent in this parable? Christ. Have another look at it. We often think that. We talk about Christ the rock, and that's true, because he is the, the rock, that stumbling stone, right? But what does this parable tell us the rock is? His word, 
close. Look at both of these guys. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine. Both hear the word. Obey. The rock is obedience. The rock is not hearing the word because both these men heard the word. It's obedience to the word. And so we've already mentioned that one of the ways that we will develop the fear of God is to hear the word, is to read the word, is to pray and confess our sins. But also, we need to be obeying the word. In fact, if you've ever found yourself at a point in your life where you're struggling, where you don't feel yourself growing in Christ, the reason why is often because you have been reading or listening or hearing, but not what? Obeying. And there comes a point in time where God says, you know what you have to do, I'm not going to give you more until you grow, until you do what I've already told you to do. And so, going back, when we talk about the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, wisdom is not merely something which we, um, which we hear, it's not a mental knowledge, it's that act of doing. The wise man was the one who heard and obeyed. Fear, the fear of the Lord is that hearing and obeying. That's what wisdom is. Okay. Let's carry on. Uh, We're almost at Thessalonica. Um, (laughs) Acts chapter 17. Turn back to Acts 17 with me. So, Acts chapter 17. Whose turn is it to read? Um, Elizabeth, would you be able to read Acts chapter 17? That's alright, no rush. Uh, Verses 1 through to the first part of verse 10. Yes, please. That place. So this is, this is where Paul gets to Thessalonica and he starts that evangelism. He starts, he starts off with three weeks evangelising the Jews, as it says there in uh, verse, which verse was it, verse 2. And on, for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them in the Scriptures. Now, there's good reason to believe that Paul was actually in Thessalonica longer than these three weeks. There's a bunch of reasons for that. I've got some verses on the board there, or on the whatever, whatever you call it. Um, but for instance, uh, in 1 Thessalonians, we get some clues. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, it 
It reads there, they themselves report about, about us what kind of reception, this is the Macedonians, we had with you, and how, listen to the Thessalonians, what they did. You turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. That suggests that that was predominantly a Gentile audience. So, it suggests that most of the people in the church at Thessalonica were Gentiles, suggesting that, you know, it says there in chapter 17 that a few uh, of, the, of, the, of the Jews followed him, but there was a great number of Gentiles. Further, it says a number of times in 1 Thessalonians that Paul worked while he was there. It says in chapter 2, verse 9, You recall, brethren, our labour and hardship, how working day and night, so as not to be a burden of any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul was there working for his living. If he was there for a short time, it's questionable whether he would have had to have done that. Um, not only this, but the depth of relationship that he established with these people suggests that there's more than a relationship you would establish over two or three weeks, or even one or two weeks, given that you know, people were being saved throughout. It wasn't like everybody got saved at the beginning of the three weeks, right? People were getting saved throughout those three weeks. And so he was building this rich relationship with them, as he says in chapter 2, um, uh, where was it? Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, the care that he had for them. In verse 8, he says, Having a fond affection of you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. So he established a close relationship with them, suggesting he was there for some time. And finally, in Philippians chapter 4, uh, we read in Philippians 4, and verse 16, how that when it says there, For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So Paul left Philippi, and when he was in, in Thessalonica, the Philippian church sent him more than one gift to help him with his needs. Now, if he was there just for a couple of weeks, or three weeks, it's unlikely they would have sent more than one gift. Remember, Travel is, you know, it's a hundred miles between Philippi and Thessalonica, which if you're walking at three to four miles an hour, which is the average speed of a horse walk or a human walk, that's about 25 hours of walking. It's not a real quick kind of, I'm just going to pop over to Thessalonica for the afternoon. So for, for travel, for news to go back and forth would take some time, and it's a reasonable journey for somebody to take, not to mention the process of collecting and all those sorts of things back in Philippi. So that suggests that Paul was in, in this place for quite a while longer than three weeks. So the passage, what we get in uh, Acts, suggests that he was in the synagogue for three weeks, but then he had a, a ministry outside of the synagogue uh, beyond that for a little while, although it's not mentioned very much in Acts at all. So, what did it cost Paul to evangelise? Well, particularly in Thessalonica, Ultimately, yes, it cost him his life, yeah. What did it cost him in Thessalonica? They were running out of town, yep. Yeah. Have a look at uh, the passages on the, uh, on the screen there. Chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. Uh, we've read them already. Um, it says there, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, or not without content, or not without substance, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, you know we had the boldness to speak the gospel of God amid much opposition. So it cost him a reputation. Now, he had no reputation to start with, but certainly he did not come to Thessalonica to build one. right? 
But further, further on in, chapter, in verses 9 through to 12, he talks there about how the, the labour and hardship for working night and day, this was not a, a holiday resort for him. It cost him time, it cost him effort, he had to support himself. Um, and carrying on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we see the same thing there where he says, we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labour and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So it cost Paul probably some sleepless nights, maybe not sleepless, but certainly it cost him rest. He wasn't able to rest while he did this. He wasn't able to just, you know, take his time. There was a degree of urgency. There was a degree of, you know, significance about the work he was about there. But ultimately, as we've already pointed out, he was suffered in Philippi. He was run out of town ultimately. Um, let me just go back to Acts for a moment. Uh, you guys don't have to go there. I'll just read these couple of verses to you in Acts 17. Um, it says there that uh, the Jews, verse 5 of chapter 17, the Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them in front of the people. They did not find them and they began dragging Jason and the brethren before the city authorities. Um, and then it carries on in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away because they fed for their lives. Right? But these, 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 uh, these Jews, the Thessalonica, it describes when Paul went from Thessalonica, he went to Berea, and it describes the Berean Jews as more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, which suggests that those in Thessalonica were not very noble. Uh, and then there's a, another comment, which I've lost, uh, which says, remember, you remember actually um, verse 13, chapter 17, when the Jews of Thessalonica found out the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they followed him there. They weren't going to have this guy even anywhere in their region. They went down there and again they stirred up a crowd and had him kicked out of Berea as well. So he was pursued out of town essentially. But here's a really important thing too. What did it cost the Thessalonians? The Thessalonians rather. It cost them something just to become Christians. Have a look at First uh, Thessalonians verses, chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. Who would like to read this for us? Anyone would like to read these verses? Daniel. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Through to verse, uh, what did I say, verse 7. That's what you did. Good. Okay, forgive me. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they, beca- they received the word in much tribulation, right? They were uh, afflicted as they went through that. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 13 as well. Daniel, could you read this one as well for us? 13 and 14. And we also thank God constantly for this. When you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Yeah. So what did it cost the Thessalonians to be saved? Suffering. It cost them suffering. It cost them possibly businesses. 
you know, reputations, livelihoods, just to become a Christian. And we go back to the question we had right at the beginning. Who do we imitate? Who, do we, who, do, who are the influential people in our lives and what sort of people do we copy in the way we live? Several times here, it says that in verse, chapter 1, verse 6, you, Thessalonians, became imitators of us and of the Lord. Right? So, the, so what they saw in Paul and what they heard about in Christ is what they became. Chapter 2, verse 14, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. You endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen that they had at the hands of their Jews. So who did they become imitators of? Who was it that was most influential in their life? It was those who ministered amongst them. It was those who preached the gospel to them. And why was that, do you think? Why do you think they became those who were suffered? Why do you think that... How do you think Paul gave, uh, gave them an example? What sort of example did they see in Paul? Yeah, yeah. So, so they see a guy who's constantly being beaten, so they have no illusions about what they're coming to. They have no expectations that they're going to have a, a nice, comfortable life and just sort of, you know, go to church and enjoy each other's company. It also causes me to think that they're sort of decisive about the Christianity, that there is a suffering. Yeah. And it causes us to look at our own situation. Hmm, am I getting along at work with my non-Christian? Yeah, yeah. And, and have a look at chapter 1, end of chapter 1, verses 8 to 10. How did Paul, how did Paul, what evidence did Paul give for their salvation? And he says three things there essentially. For the word of God is sounded forth from you. In other words, one of the ways that these people demonstrated that they were saved is that the gospel went out, not just to their brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and you know, people they work with, but everybody in the whole area knew about them. In fact, Paul is saying that they went to Berea and the Bereans told Paul what he had suffered and what he had gone through in Thessalonica and how the Thessalonians had reacted to the Gospel. So their fame had gone out before he would even left there. Um, verse 9, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you listened to what they did. They Three things, they turned to God from idols. Second thing, to serve a living and true God, and thirdly, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So they had three things there. They had a a change in their direction of life. They changed, and so it wasn't just about being in faith and being believing in God, but serving him. Remember what he said before about pleasing God? We talked about that. Well, these people turned and began to please God also. And then thirdly, they waited. If you go back, go back up to chapter 1 verse 3, Paul as he prayed for them says he's constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. That work of faith is much the same as this idea of turning from God, from idols to God. That work of faith is that change, that turnaround, turning from things that please you, turning from things that are taking your focus from serving God, and pleasing him. That's that first thing. That's that work of faith. And then it says, um, a labour of love. 
What's the difference, do you think, between work and labour? Because in verse 3 here, he's got work, work of faith and labour of love. What's the difference? Yeah, you keep going. To what point? To exhaustion, yeah. Yeah. The words in the original here, there's two different words. One is just a, a work we do, right? And that's kind of why I'm going back to that. You're turning to serve, you know, turning to from idols to God, having a different focus. But the labour here is a labour to the point of exhaustion. Sometimes translated as tired or worn out. When Jesus got to Samaria and started talking to the woman at the well, the word is used there to say that he was worn out from his journey. Okay? So, that's kind of the idea here. So, he had this work of faith, which was the turning to God from idols. He had this labour of love, which means he, they worked to the point of exhaustion. And you see there in verse 9, they served a living and true God. That's that kind of idea. What they wanted was God, what they served was now God. And that was the thing that they allowed to wear them out. And thirdly, in verse 3, um, the steadfastness of hope. In verse 10, to wait for his son. So here what he's seeing is that faith, hope and love thing combined together. And he's seeing that as evidence for their salvation. What sort of things, I know we're running short on time, what do you think we tend to emphasise in those things? What do, you, or what do you rather think we tend to underemphasize out of those things? Any ideas? Well, we're pretty good at emphasising all of them. Vic? I think, uh, you know, just in my experience with other Christians and stuff that I know, uh, I think that... Uh, they have a, you know, some have a lack of anticipation of his soon return because mm-hmm. they have the idea that, well, people have been saying that for years. Mm. You know, well, each day that we go, it's, it's another day closer. Yeah. And I think there's just a lack of anticipation for his return. Yeah. Yeah. And even inside that, that anticipation, there's this idea of steadfastness. Right? It's a not living for the world and for what the things it says, you should chase this, but it's saying, I'm content with Christ for however long it takes. Right? So that's kind of part of the idea here. Yeah. Um, we've talked about a little, well, we've talked a little bit about this. The, the, you know, the differences between the church in Thessalonica and, the, and our church today, I mean, we're in different circumstances radically different. The gospel is much more acceptable here in America and in the West in general. But that's changing, isn't it? That's changing. And that should give us some, some cause to think. You know, um, we tend to focus on the things that are going wrong and how the, how the West is going downhill and how America is becoming less Christian. I heard a figure the other day that in a recent uh, survey, something like 46% of people said they were Christians and 55% or something like that said that they had no affiliation, no religious convictions at all. It's changing. The tide is turning. And that brings us back to the question of how did Paul act? What was the cost for the Thessalonians in living for their faith? We are going down that track. And we kind of think of a Christian world as the norm, but it's kind of not. This is a unique time in history in that sense. Um, 
Another question we sort of talked about earlier, what motivates you? Are you driven by a desire to please God or are you driven to a desire to please yourself? Is there something else that you're desiring to, to do that is not about God? Look, that's the end. So, we'll leave it there. Um, we will pick this up again uh, in a few weeks' time maybe. We'll see how we go when Dr. Barrett's next away probably. Um, and we'll carry on with the study. Let me close in prayer. Father, we are uh, thankful that you have not left us as orphans in this world, but that your Holy Spirit is available for us. Lord, we see in the Thessalonians what it took for them to become a Spirit-empowered church. They forsook the idols. They forsook the things that were something other than you. And rather than serving those and rather than following after those, they turned and they served you. Lord, they removed those things from themselves and they gave themselves wholly to you regardless of the cost. And even today, Lord, in our midst, there are many amongst us who, who are the only person in their home who is saved, who is the only person in their family perhaps who is saved. The only, work, the only person in the workplace who is saved. We stand often as islands, Lord, but help us to be willing like the Thessalonians to give ourselves to you regardless of the cost, to live to please you, to live out of a fear of displeasing you. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves, to confess our sins before you, to recognise your exaltedness, your, your greatness, how huge you are, how that you know all things and you control everything and you are worthy of our worship. We pray this week, Lord, that you will help us to meditate on what it is that motivates us, that we would seek to be imitators of Christ and not imitators of the people around us. Help us to set our eyes on you, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We ask this, Lord, that you be glorified in our midst because we, are, we have been purchased, not for our own benefit, but for yours. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.